brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, 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 Higher Side Chatters, how we doing out there from sunny San Diego? I'm Greg Carlwood, and I'm just saddened by the sorry state of society as we head into another month of masks, mandates on our movement, and limits on the healthy human interaction we so desperately need. Six months of coronavirus stagnation and no signs of slowing as it takes up all the air in the room, leaving very little conversation to be had about the full steam ahead installation of dangerous 5G towers, the technocratic takeover, and the many signs that even our most basic systems are failing to function and no one's really got their hand on the wheel anymore. It seems like the entire establishment is too preoccupied with political back and forths and circling the wagons to suppress as much information as they can about the fall of the House of Epstein and protect the soft underbelly of Hollywood, Washington, D.C., and the new scientism overlords. We're a nation of rats, dens, and viper nests, and many cynical citizens sit and watch the decline without much thought on how they can work for a better world or even just improve their own life. But definitely not today's guest, Derek Bros. Derek is an activist, journalist, and the founder and CEO of the Conscious Resistance Network, an independent media organization focused on empowering individuals through education, philosophy, health, and community organizing that works to create a world where corporate and state power does not rule over the lives of free human beings. He's created great documentaries like Bringing Down Jeffrey Epstein, The 5G Trojan Horse, and Who Will Find What the Finders Hide. He's authored or co-authored several books, including two of his own called How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State and The Holistic Self-Assessment. And Derek also entered the lion's den firsthand in 2019 to be the change he hoped to see in the world and ran for mayor of Houston, Texas, raising important issues like the health and surveillance concerns over 5G and legalizing cannabis. An inspiration to us all and hopefully the kick in the pants we need to answer the call the conscious resistor, change and sister, and a true light in the darkness. Derek, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hey, brother. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate that. And your introductions are probably always the best part of the show. (laughs) Too kind, too kind. I try. And this is a real pleasure. Your body of work is very impressive. Documentaries, books, podcasts, and a run for mayor. 
It seems like you never stop, man. And I don't mean to start right off with the negative, but so many of us tend to just drift through life going from work desk to TV screen and back again. And when it comes to living life to the fullest, sometimes you don't know what you got till it's gone, as they say. And it seems like you made the kind of turnaround that many people struggle to make, right? Yeah, and I guess you're referencing some of the struggles I've been through in the past. And I tend to feel like those experiences shaped me to be the person I am today and to take on the work ethic, I guess you could call it, that I do when it comes to journalism and activism. And I mean, as you know, it's so much more than that. We're really dealing with real life. You know, this isn't just... I know you don't just podcast because you needed an extra hobby to do on the weekends or something, you know, and myself and I think many other people recognize that this is this work, if you want to call it the great work, as some call it, is about the future of humanity in our lives and the direction we're going to take the planet. And it took me a long while to get to that point where I even had the, I guess you could say the personal personal self-love and self-esteem to even think that maybe my own life, let alone the world at large, was worth saving or fighting for or even, you know, just to care enough about it. And, you know, I, I'm 35 now, but 15 years ago when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I got addicted to drugs and, you know, went down that route for a while, just partying a lot and ended up getting locked up, getting addicted to crystal meth when I was 19, 20 years old. And then I spent my 21st birthday locked up behind bars. And I ended up doing 18 months in Texas state prisons between 2005 and 2008. And I mean, that really set me on the path I am on now. Like I said, that was 15 years ago. But without those experiences, I don't believe I would probably be doing what I'm doing now. Because it was when I got locked up that I started to do a lot of introspection and meditation and journaling and kind of just asking myself how I got into these positions and why I was using drugs, what was I trying to avoid, what are the deeper issues, all those kinds of questions, you know. And I mean, the answer for me was yes. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey into self-introspection, recognizing that I'd grown up around a family of addicts and alcoholics and spent my earliest years visiting my birth father in prison and kind of going through that whole thing and trying to navigate that as a young child. And those experiences really, I feel like without those experiences in my early childhood, I might not have questioned so much of the world because because I was in such a dark place, I was very antagonistic towards the world, very destructive and, and self-destructive as well. But at the same time, I also recognized that a lot of the BS that were fed in school or church or just different places as you're growing up, that it didn't really quite line up with my view of the world. And I guess you could say I knew that we were in some sort of matrix or that something didn't feel right, even if I didn't have the knowledge or the the words to communicate it at the time. It just knew that something wasn't right. And so when I got locked up in prison and started getting into meditation, specifically Zen Buddhist meditation, Zazen, and learning as much as I could and kind of diving into my own young childhood pain and getting connected to the inner child, as they talk about, and as I've written about since, it helped me see that throughout my young childhood as a depressed little kid and as an angry teenager and then starting to get in trouble and then starting to get arrested and just going through all these different things, that it wasn't that there was something wrong with me, you know, that it was like I was just this horrible kid that just wouldn't listen and just couldn't sit down and obey the authorities. It's almost as if my experiences showed me that there was something kind of inherently wrong with the world and that a lot of the adults and the people 
that I was interacting with, especially the adults, that they had either bought into this matrix or that they themselves also realized that things weren't quite right, but instead chose to just go along with it. And once I was in prison and sort of reflecting back on this, it became really clear that there was so much trauma, not only in my own family and specifically in my father and his lifelong struggle with drug addiction. He actually ended up dying of a drug overdose two years ago after being in and out of prison for my entire life and kind of struggling with that. It really shaped my work and what I do and even the the name of my website, The Conscious Resistance. Like To me, the experiences I went through then and since then have helped me see that there's just so much trauma in our world and so much pain and frustration. And it comes in different ways based on our experiences, our environments and all that stuff. But I think it's that unresolved trauma that largely leads to many of the problems that we're seeing in our world today. Not only the sort of on the the citizen population level of us attacking each other because various things, but also I don't believe that the people, the powers that wish they were, the people who are at the top of the pyramid, I don't believe that they are happy, satisfied, you know, self-actualized beings. I think that it's their own trauma and their desire to control and manipulate other people is directly stemmed from whatever trauma that they're carrying. So yeah, I mean, I went through a lot of that stuff, depression, suicide attempts, drug abuse, drug addiction, and in prison. And I got out the final time, October 2008, right before Obama got elected and was kind of coming out of this haze of not only getting sober from the drugs I was on, but also just out from the cloud of depression. And it was a really interesting time to kind of be re-emerging to the world watching this fanaticism over Obama and watching the other side, like this guy's going to be the antichrist or he's going to be the, you know, the hero we all need. And I wasn't really politically aware at the time. I was just kind of, you know, I just more like generally fuck authority. I'm not into government. But then I started to get, when I got out, I realized that I had a thirst for knowledge and that I am an intelligent person and I like to learn. I like to read. I like to understand things. I mean, I had kind of forgotten about that and lost touch with that. And so I came out and it was just this thirst for knowledge, thirst for understanding. And also I was a felon now. So I had the kind of newfound experience of being judged as a felon and not being able to get certain jobs and all that comes with that. And so I spent a lot of time at the library just applying for jobs. And of course, in that process, checking out books and reading and I started to learn about the drug war, and that was an interesting thing for me because I was just getting out of prison as part of the drug war. And it was a lot of information I hadn't learned before. And from there, it was like, well, what else have I not been taught about? And then a couple Jim Mars books, an Alex Jones documentary, a Ron Paul book later, and my world was not the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Yes. And I totally empathize, man. I think it is an inspiration to talk about that kind of stuff for people who are stuck. It's like the old Krishnamurti quote, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. I think a lot of us are feeling disenfranchised. And I was such an idiot when I was 20. I know how easily we can make major mistakes that have bad implications. And I also know how difficult it is to break generational cycles that, uh, you know, don't serve us. And so it's just really impressive what you've been able to do and the network you've built as well. So I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your run for mayor of Houston last year, bold move, because some of the most fun I've had with your work is seeing you go toe to toe with the so-called, you know, quote unquote leaders of the city and sticking a camera in their face to answer difficult questions, educating the city council on 5G from the podium. 
it's all entertaining, but also really important and inspiring. Many of us get defeated and just disengaged from the system, as you said, but you really turned it around and went for it. What was that experience like? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I should, you know, add a caveat in there that I absolutely do think it's valuable when people get involved, whether that's going to city council or some sort of similar body on the local level. But I've also been doing this for 10 years now. And I kind of go in there these days with the full realization that it usually doesn't have the effect that, you know, I would like, for example, like them saying, oh, well, let's reconsider this 5G thing. For the most part, you're usually either ignored, laughed at, or kind of talked down to. Um, But I have also seen over the years that these videos, so I mean, let's just, I'll explain it to you, like Houston City Council's on a Tuesday afternoon at 2.30, typically in non-pandemic times. And 2.30 in the afternoon is not a very convenient time for most people, (laughs) you know, most people with jobs, families, kids. So it's already difficult for people to go there, you know, to do their civic duty. Oh, you have a problem in the city. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do what I think I'm supposed to do. I go to city council, I speak to the mayor and the council and say, hey, I have this issue with whatever's going on. And, you know, they get everything from people who are saying they were assaulted by police to people who are saying they're arguing with their neighbors and they want the city to fix it and just all kinds of crazy things. And again, half the time they're ignoring people unless it's an issue that they really care about or they can score some political points, they kind of just breeze through it as they sign new contracts to sign away people's tax dollars for all kinds of things. So I started going in 2010 and learning the process and also learning the way they treat people. But I realized that, okay, these city council meetings are televised on local public access TV in the city of Houston, like most city council meetings are pretty much anywhere in the US. And then those are loaded onto the city's website where they're seen by nobody because nobody goes to check on the city's website to watch the weekly city council meetings. But I realized that if I downloaded them and then I took out the clips of myself just speaking and, you know, it's two, three, four, five minute videos, put those out there on YouTube and elsewhere that they get tons more views than they would just sitting on the city's website. And as you said, they tend to serve as kind of a source of inspiration for other people, hopefully, and sometimes people who want to come be a part of that. I have got a lot of people to come join at city council to express themselves and even if it's just like, go rant at these people who are allegedly your representatives. But yeah, so I started to use it more as like a recruiting tool. And one of the videos I did more recently, specifically about 5G, I think it was October 2018. Yeah, about that time. It was after I was wrapping up my Jeffrey Epstein documentary and sort of looking for a new topic to get into. And at the same time, they had just started to roll out 5G in Houston. So I went to this public meeting, I got to confront the CEO of Verizon, as well as the mayor. And then I went to the city council the following week. And I just, you know, I always have my information kind of ready to go. And I've learned how you've got two minutes, sometimes maybe three minutes, maybe even one minute, depending on how often you come. So you got to be pretty good at getting out your information in a very concise manner. And also, again, being prepared for the fact that they might not say anything to you, you might not get anything else other than your one, two or three minutes. So I came in there with a few different studies and references and just kind of laid it out there and shared it with them. And the first time I actually did get a good response from one of the city council members who he tends to stand with me on like fluoride issues, health issues, vaccines. He's kind of awake on those things. Fortunately, he's no longer a council member and he's one of 16 people and his voice basically doesn't matter. But he asked me a question so I could stay up there longer. He purposely knew what he was doing. He was extending my time and helping me be able to share as much as I could. So I took that video and I think it came out to about seven minutes. I loaded that one on YouTube and that one ended up getting 
I think at this point, like, I mean, I, I think it was close to a million views with that video, just yeah, for whatever reason, it, it just kind of took off on its own. And, um, yeah, and I've gone a dozen or more times since then, but that one, whatever it was about that day and the way I spoke or whatever, it just resonated with a lot of people. And that led to so many people contacting me from around the world saying, thank you, or looking for more information about how they can do something similar. And even people here in the city of Houston who wanted to be involved. And so, yeah, I've just decided to start using it as a tactic to, yeah, I'm going to speak to the council, but I'm not going there expecting them to make any big changes. Instead, it's more about how much information can I get in this two minutes and show, hey, look, these people are either straight up ignoring you or they don't care. And then turning around and sharing that with the public, who, like I said, is typically busy on a Tuesday afternoon when city council is held. And it has worked to great effect as far as just being a, a recruiting tool and getting people to recognize that the city council members here in Houston really don't give a damn. And the one or two that might give a damn are totally outnumbered because the system on the local level, and I think that this is similar in some places, but not nearly as bad as it is in Houston and in Denver. It's so set up to just disenfranchise people. The city of Houston has one of the strongest mayoral positions other than Denver. And there's other cities that have what is known as a strong mayoral position, but Denver and Houston are particularly strong. And all this means is that the mayor is basically a local dictator. In Houston, the way it works is the mayor has the power to set the agenda, which the agenda basically decides what topics get discussed, what issues get mentioned and brought up. So let's say I'm going to speak about 5G. Well, they have an official agenda. And if my topic, 5G or whatever, is not on the official agenda, well, then they put me at the end of the, the roster. So I have to wait, you know, sometimes two, three hours, four hours till you finally get to speak. And by that point, half the council members are gone. The ones that are there, like they're just ready to go home. They're not really paying attention to you. Well, the mayor in Houston has the ability to set that agenda. And thus, he has a huge amount of power. The other thing is that the city council members they can suggest agenda items, but again, it has to be approved by the mayor. So let's say even if I was to go spend the hours and hours and weeks, and I've tried this with other issues, visiting city council members' offices, talking to them, presenting information, telling them why this matters to their constituents and why they should take a stand on it. We could have six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, even all 16 council members saying, mayor, we are concerned about this 5G. We're concerned about this fluoride. We're concerned about whatever it may be. And if the mayor still is not interested, they can basically say, no, it's not on the agenda. So I've started to see this over the years with police violence issues, with homelessness, water quality, just whatever it is, and just see how many times that people have been shut down because the city of Houston's mayoral position is just way too strong. And also seeing that Houston was one of the first places in the U.S. to start getting 5G, it was really concerning to me. So last year, basically, I was sitting around with some friends enjoying some herbs. And this joke sort of evolved into a mayoral campaign. It was just like watching the mayor just step on everybody's rights and watching just getting sick of myself at the time, like going to city council, putting out these videos. And yeah, we're getting lots of YouTube videos and that's cool. And I'm glad people are getting inspired, but it's still not achieving the goal that I want, which is putting a halt to 5G, raising awareness and these kinds of things. And it just started out as sort of a joke of this mayor thinks he's really somebody, you know, somebody needs to run for the nobodies. And that was kind of, hey, maybe we should do a nobody for mayor campaign type thing. And it just evolved from there after a few conversations. And then before you know it, I was starting to take it seriously, like, hey, maybe we could really do this. It won't be a typical campaign. We'll do it our way, but it could be a legitimate campaign and an opportunity to talk about issues like 5G 
talk about all kinds of controversial things. And actually, a lot of them are relevant right now, specifically vaccine mandates. One of my kind of nine things I was running on was that at no point if I was mayor would I ever allow there to be any sort of mandates or issuing that would make vaccines mandatory or forced or anything like that. And of course, that got a lot of support from some people, but also in the eyes of other people, I'm an anti-vaxxer, I'm crazy and this and that. And now here we are a year later and it's really relevant. I'm sure a lot of people wish they had a, you know, a mayor or just anybody willing to say, hey, you can rest assured we're not going to allow vaccine mandates. But yeah, it, it turned out to be just one of the most enriching experiences, I can say. I mean, I had no interest in being mayor. I was actually kind of terrified at some points that we might actually win <laughs> because it was starting to grow and we were starting to get support. We were getting donations. We had a whole team of volunteers. We had people, I mean, people who were just into the idea and who loved everything I was talking about. And I really strive to make it not about me. You know, I'm not a politician. Yeah, I have a story, but let's talk about these nine issues. And it gave me, when I say like it was just such an enriching experience, it's mainly because as you saw in the videos, I got to sit on the table at the debates and at the local town halls. You know, the way the local elections work, you get the Democrat groups and the Republican groups because technically, theoretically, there's no parties in Houston on the local level, which is another reason I was excited about it because I wouldn't have done it if I was required to pledge allegiance to any kind of party. It's just not my style. So I was happy that that's not how Houston politics works. Although it's clear the mayor's a Democrat and the guy, one of the main challengers was a Republican, you know. There's no D or R or red or blue next to anybody's name when you go vote for them. So I appreciated that. I was like, I can just run truly independently, not have to try to play to any sort of side. And I just got to see up front and center a lot of the BS that we know already happens, like just to see even on the local level how people are willing to sell their soul, how I'm local media censors anybody that doesn't fit the paradigm that they're trying to promote how the local neighborhood groups, like a lot of people understand that the DNC and the RNC, the Republican Democratic parties are corrupt on the federal level. But what they don't get is that it trickles all the way down to your neighborhood group. Let's say your Shady Oaks Republican group or whatever neighborhood groups you have. Those groups, many of them also get funding from the Republican and Democratic national parties. And through that funding, they are able to shape who they select or focus on. So there was a lot of kind of local debates and forums that I really had to be aggressive and push my way into just to make sure that my voice was heard. And, you know, when push come to shove, people will put on their nice, polite face and say, oh, we didn't know you were running. Oh, we're so sorry. You know, and they would kind of allow me begrudgingly. Other times they would really make an effort to keep me from being a part of the event, especially once they started to see what I was speaking about and the issues I was bringing to the table. And, you know, just with the local media, I had to kind of threaten legal action against two different local news outlets because they were not that I really give a damn about the FCC or any of this legal stuff. But you know, when you have to use it against them, it can be a useful tool. And just telling them like, hey, I paid the stupid little fee that I had to pay. And that's another thing I didn't realize you had to pay to run for office. And so for some people that prices them out, you got to pay $1,200 just to go apply to get in the thing, Mm. you know, and just to fill out a piece of paper and say, hey, I've done this. And so, you know, I got to learn a lot more of the mechanics of how it goes on behind the scenes. And I'm one of the people who for years have told people, look, if you're going to get involved in politics, shy away from the government. There's no hope in the federal government. There's, I don't even know if there's much hope on the state level. Instead, focus as locally as possible, you know, run for city council or maybe school board and all these different ways where you can have some effect. And yet at the same time, at least for the city of Houston, which is a major city, I realize that the corruption is just too ingrained already in the local level. I don't even think that 
you could have somebody legitimate win an election on the local level. I mean, they tried so hard to, from the very beginning, the media and the local political groups, they really tried hard six months ahead of the election to tell people there's only four candidates running when in fact there was 12 people, including myself, who had filed and who'd done all the legal things they're supposed to do. And so they're legitimate candidates. They should be given a chance to say their piece. But there was quite an effort to make it seem as if there's only four or five people you really need to pay attention to. And so I learned quite a bit. You know, I got to speak to the Houston Chronicle editorial board. You know, they invite you there to come see if you want to get a an endorsement, which is basically just a it's all just a show. They've already chosen who they want. We already knew that. And so I got to meet them at least and speak to them face to face and then get up and walk out and say that this whole thing is a sham. You guys have spent the last six months ignoring most of us here at this table and focusing only on the three or four candidates. You're sitting here telling me you're looking forward to getting to know who we are because you don't know much about us. Well, that's because you guys aren't doing journalism because you haven't actually reached out to any of us. You haven't made an effort and I got up, I shook the hands of the fellow candidates and said, guys, screw this, I'm out of here. And, and it, was, it was quite a scene. But to me, you know, because I'm not interested in being a politician and trying to preserve my political clout or whatever, then it kind of frees me from having to play their game in many ways and instead say, like, screw it, we're going to do it our own way. You know? And I was very proud for everything we were able to accomplish. We probably, with our small little campaign, raised around $15,000 over six months, and that allowed us to print flyers and put out banners and get a couple of radio ads and really build a movement. And that amounted to, I think, just under a thousand votes or so, which wasn't really my goal. I mean, I never was really talking about voting. I was trying to tell people like, we can build a movement here. We can start putting community gardens and instituting permaculture around the city of Houston. And I don't have to pass a single law to do it. Let's start doing it now. You know, I was very much trying to promote a kind of ground up community led approach. And I think people appreciated that and I wasn't expecting it to amount to a lot of votes in the end. So, you know, in the eyes of much of the mainstream and some of the other candidates, it was a failure because we didn't get a lot of votes or whatever. But I know that we reached a lot of people and we helped people see that, hey, maybe a political campaign can be something completely different, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're also running against people who are spending tens and millions of dollars <laughs> as well. So I, I was just happy to get out there. And my main goal was I want to be on the stage of this mayor. And I want to call him out to his face because every time I go to city council, just to kind of bring it back, every time I go to city council, they say, ding, two minutes is up. Thanks. Next. Move on. And he just has a smirk on his face and there's nothing I can do. And as you've said, I've done the confrontations. I've chased them down at events. I've done all that. So I figured, you know what? If I'm in the race and I'm done all the paperwork and all the things they say, then there's nothing they can do to stop me from being there on stage and calling him out to his face. And I got to do that several times. So I was happy to do that. Yes, man. I love it. And it is a great story. And we should learn more about how our local governments function, especially this year. It's never been more apparent how important it is to pay attention to your local government because it's all about how some places are very much with the big agenda and some are resisting. Of course, a motivation that you've talked about is how Houston was making this big push to be one of the first smart cities. And, you know, that's a whole different rail than how people are responding to the events of 2020. But, I mean, it's a big deal. San Diego, my city, sadly, is also one that is making one of those big pushes. But I brought up the mayoral run really to kind of tee up this important point that I've heard you make, which is that Houston is a city of almost 4 million people and less than 250,000 turned up to vote for mayor, which is 
kind of crazy to me, but it shows that the vast majority of people have just given up. And even if a fraction of those people rallied around someone who's really on team people, maybe it is possible to elbow our way in there and turn the tide of corruption and criminality on a local level because far fewer people are voting than a lot of us realize, I think. So that's an important point. But just moving along here, that brings me to your book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, because again, we know what we need to know about it, but we just don't know how to maybe overcome it or slow it down. And that's what this book is about. You write that it's inspired by Samuel E. Konkin III and his strategy of counter-economics. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. And just one other point on what you're saying there. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right about the low voter turnout. That was one of my motivating factors too. And I also think it's kind of a a point in the argument about why democracy is a failure, that you've got 4 million people in a city and less than 5% of them get to decide who's going to be the guy that's going to make all these decisions internationally, globally. And now here we are, this guy that less than 5% of the people voted on is heading up the pandemic response and you know issuing fines for people not wearing masks. So maybe if there was a viral enough campaign to get somebody in there, then you could actually take over their system. And I will also say, who the hell knows what the world's going to look like in three or four years, but I'm leaving the door open to bros for mayor 2023 <laughs> just to see what happens. But yeah, as far as how to opt out of the technocratic state, I know your audience is very familiar with technocracy already. And as you said, many of us, though, are looking for the solutions. What can we do about what's going on in the world? And for me, this was like, we're dealing with a situation where the technocracy is clearly coming into view. It's been coming into view for a number of years, even before coronavirus. This was already clear to myself, you, and plenty of other people who've been kind of seeing the horizon. And so I started writing this book late last year focused on solutions because I figured, look, we're going to 2020. We all know about Agenda 2030. This might be the beginning of the erection of this technocratic state. And I wrote about, well, the rollout of facial recognition, the rollout of drones and all this stuff. And I released the book about a few weeks before the pandemic was announced. And a lot of the things I wrote about are now coming true much more quickly than I even anticipated. So the time for solutions is absolutely here. And I find the solutions that I believe are, I don't want to say they're the solution because I don't think there is one the solution, but they're part of the multifaceted solutions out there, is the work of Samuel Konkin III. And he is somebody that I've taken a lot of inspiration from over the years. and. My first three books, which were written by John Vibes, I think you've had John on in the past. Me and him wrote these books a couple of years ago. We're also inspired by Konkin. And he basically was this radical libertarian anarchist activist from, he died in 2004. So he was really active in like the 60s student movement and in the 70s throughout the 80s up until his death pretty much. But he died, as I said, in 2004, which is unfortunate because many of the things that he wrote about and predicted have started to come true shortly after his death. And namely, what he talked about was what he called agorism, which comes from the word agora, the Greek word agora, which is just simply the word for marketplace, and the strategy of counter-economics. And so the way that those kind of go about is that he believed that the way towards a more free, just, liberated society, for one, that it would not come from voting and that it would not come from violence, you know, 
thinking that we can overthrow the system with violence and or anything of that sort. And he saw voting, as I largely do, as ineffective. And, you know, we kind of just talked about the whole political system. So after trying to go that route, trying the political route and trying the let's go be violent activists on the street route, he decided the efforts to try to change the system via voting were not going to work. You know, the movement that he was a part of actually is the movement that led to the modern American Libertarian Party. And he was very much against the creation of that. He considered himself to be, you know, a radical libertarian and that he thought that if you really cared about liberty and trying to free people and allow people the freedom to make their own choices, joining the political system was kind of the antithesis of that. So he was very much against that. And then he also saw that violence wasn't an effective strategy and that even if you thought it was an effective strategy, that we were outgunned and outnumbered already on that front. So then he started to think about what other options do we have? You know, many people would hear that and say, okay, well, if we're not going to vote and play that game, well, then I guess the answer is just to be apathetic, right? You just give up and you don't care and whatever. And I think that's where some people do fall. But what he proposed was this sort of third path. And that's where counter-economics comes in. In his world and his vision, the place that he was trying to get was this agora, this marketplace that would be free and open exchange where people could trade goods, services, have completely voluntary and consensual relationships in the absence of a system built on violence. And so his goal was, how do we get there? You know, If we're not going to get there with voting, if we're not going to get there through violence, what are other options? And that led to his discovery of what he called counter-economics. And counter-economics is essentially the economic interaction. And by that, I just mean people interacting because everything we do is an economic exchange, even if it doesn't involve money. Like right now, you and I are, we're in the middle of an economic exchange because both of us are choosing to spend a couple of hours together when we could be doing other things. So we've agreed that we're going to come to these terms and spend some time together and exchange information because it's mutually beneficial for us. So we're having an economic exchange. And so his idea was if people start recognizing that the power that we really have lies outside that system, if we start taking back our finances, our energy, our time away from the government, the Federal Reserve, et cetera, and taking it away from them back into our hands, back into our own communities, that we could then use that power and leverage that power, both financial and otherwise, to create and build a new system. And so when he talks about the counter economy, and in one hand, he was sort of using the language of the time because, you know, he's in the 60s and 70s and people were talking about counterculture. And there was the new left movement. So he started calling his movement the new libertarian movement or the radical libertarian movement. And he talked about counter economics. And this is also sometimes known as the informal economy. I've seen it referred to as system D by some researchers. Essentially, what Konkin discovered is that there's this huge, I think it's probably the biggest economy in the entire world that is untaxed, that is unregulated. And that actually most of the world outside of the United States and outside of the Western nations exists in. And this is the market that happens where neighbor and neighbor exchange cash so that you know one of them can mow the other's lawn. Or somebody goes to a yard sale or garage sale. There's no taxes. There's no regulations involved. It's just people exchanging goods for an agreed upon currency. That could be cash. It could be crypto. It could be a barter system. It could be some other kind of localized currency that somebody created. But the point is that by taking those actions and starting to voluntarily exchange outside of the state's hands, you're depriving them of their source, of their funding, you know, and of what they need in order to control us. 
And so Konkin start to look at all these different global markets and see there's so many people that get involved in what is known as the gray and the black markets out of necessity. So when the state says they want to institute some new kind of you know, regulation on entering the workplace as a business owner, and some poor entrepreneur wants to enter that marketplace and launch a new business, but they can't even afford the fees and the regulations and the permits to get started, they are basically classed out of the mainstream market, which Konkin called the white market, the mainstream economy. That's like if you've got a check, if it's getting federal taxes taken out of it, if it's tracked and they know your name, that's the white market. Whereas the gray market would be more the situation I described where it's two individuals exchanging goods, you know, maybe the neighbor kid mowing your lawn for 20 bucks or whatever, you know, you're just giving him cash. There's no real record of it. It's just two people making an exchange. On one hand, that's like a step away from the white market, a step away from the state system. But at the same time, you could also argue it's not as far as you could go because you're still in this situation. You're still using the Federal Reserve note, aka the dollar, right? You're not paying taxes on it, but you're still using their currency. So then an even further kind of aspect of that would be the black market. And of course, when people hear black market, plenty of people think things like violent criminals or mobsters and things of that sort. But Konkin actually differentiated between violent actions in the black market, because all the black market is basically is just economic actions that the state says that are technically illegal, right? So you're in California, and cannabis is not an issue for you anymore. I still live in this mythical land called Texas, where people get locked up for plants, right? So if a Texan out here decides, well, even though the law says it's illegal for me to possess this plant or to use this plant or to trade this plant for money or for goods and services, I'm going to choose to do it. And in fact, I'm going to do it because I know that it's taking away tax dollars from them and it's depriving them of this. Because at the end of the day, a cannabis salesman is just an entrepreneur. So Konkin was saying that people should consciously take their money away from the banks, take their money away from the state, use the gray market, and if possible, use the black market. Now, it doesn't just mean selling weed and things like that. Sometimes black market exchanges are like, for example, somebody who is selling maybe a weapons dealer or something that doesn't have a state permit to do so. That's technically illegal, right? That's the thing is with gray market, it's more like you're not getting permits or licenses that you're expected to get. So it's not technically illegal. It's just you're not following the requirements. Whereas black market is doing things that the state deems illegal. But as I said, Konkin differentiates that between what he called the red market. And the red market would be illegal and violent. Because as a new libertarian, as an agorist, he does believe, as do I, that it is wrong and immoral to initiate force or violence against another person. And he also believed in being consistent. So if you're trying to create this future agora where people are free to live and organize and exchange as they please, so long as they're not initiating violence, well, then you shouldn't expect that you're going to get there by using violence, right? So he really stressed consistency. And and his vision was just that as more people started to wake up to the state's crimes, people would start to exit from the system and create these pockets of what he called agoras and what I've started to term conscious agoras. And just little pockets where people are, yeah, I'm going to maybe not pay taxes this year, or I'm going to use cash more often. The idea being that over time, as people start to see how aggressive the state's getting, because the state inevitably grows bigger and bigger and bigger and more aggressive, that people would start to exit as they start to see that their friends and neighbors are living freely without being you know, under the boot of the state. And he also predicted that 
technology would play a great role in allowing this to happen. Of course, he's writing this in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, right as computers were coming about. He was very active on some early Yahoo forums and stuff where you can still find some of his writings. He actually predicted Bitcoin and things of that nature, if not in the specific terms, but in the idea that there would be this decentralizing currency that could come about and that would allow people to be out of the state's hands and things of that sort. Unfortunately, he died in 2004 before his ideas really started to catch on. And in the last 10 or 15 years or so, myself and others have kind of really gravitated to his ideas. And for me, now that I've kind of broken down everything that that is, as I was already into that, and at the same time as a journalist and activist starting to see the technocracy coming into view, it seemed perfect to me that they go hand in hand, that what he's talking about essentially is opting out, opting out of the mainstream society instead of trying to fight them and overthrow them, instead of trying to outvote them, vote harder than the idea is to build something better. You know, we take our money, take our time, take our energy and our moral and spiritual support of them and direct it towards this next stage of humanity, which could be much more free. And of course, this sounds like a very lofty goal, but it's just been pretty interesting to watch how technology, as we know, it's a tool, it's a double-edged sword. In many ways, it's limiting our freedom and it could be the downfall, but in other ways, it's also very liberating. You know, clearly we use the internet to communicate ideas that go against the state and they can't completely control it. It is still to some extent decentralized. So when you put this into conjunction with the technocratic philosophy that we see rolling out all around us, and like I said, I wrote this book before the pandemic began, it's clear that they want a society and a system where nobody can be outside of it, where to survive, you have to have your social credit score. And now with COVID, it's getting even worse. You know, you can't go shop anywhere if you're not wearing a mask. Soon you won't be able to shop anywhere if you don't have the vaccine or you don't have your immunity passport or your digital certificate. So what does it look like for somebody who believes in this philosophy, anybody who just believes in freedom in general, but definitely for those who see counter-economics and agorism as a solution, how do you survive the digital dystopia when they're basically saying, if you're not plugged in, you can't do anything. To me, the answer is, as many of us as possible need to get out of that system as quick as possible. We need to start building communities and systems that are off that grid so that when the time comes, people won't be forced to make these difficult decisions of, well, you know what? Like, I didn't think ahead. I never listened to the higher side chats when they were telling me all this stuff was coming. And now here I am and I have to make a choice. I have to feed my family. So I guess I'll go get that vaccine. I guess I'll go do whatever it is they say because you have no other option, right? Because you don't have any backup food, because you don't have a community to survive with, because you don't have any land, you know, whatever it may be, you haven't taken any precautions is the point. And they are using social engineering right now to force as many people into this society that they're trying to create. I mean, I don't know if you saw that the LA mayor announced they're going to start cutting off power to people who are having too big of gatherings, yes. you know, that's the reason they want us on the grid, on the smart meters is everything, because they can remotely turn us off whenever they want, if we don't comply, if we don't do whatever it is they're saying. So to me, the answer to the technocratic state is whether or not you want to kind of fully adopt Konkin's philosophy or not is almost irrelevant. I introduce it in the book and I go through a lot of the mechanics and kind of the history of it. But then ultimately, to me, the point is, even if you don't buy into everything Konkin said, I think the answer is we have to opt out as soon as possible en masse and start forming societies that can exist outside of their grid because otherwise we're going to be faced with some really tough decisions. And when they roll out that social credit score, you're going to have friends and family who tell you, I love you, Greg. I love you. I really care about you, but 
you know, you keep posting these podcasts and you keep talking about these things and my credit score is going down now because of you. So I can't associate with you anymore. I'm sorry. And if I associate with you, I can't take this next vacation or I can't travel out of the country or I won't get my health benefits or what have you. I mean, they're, they're already rolling these things out with people suggesting that those who don't take the COVID vaccine should have to pay higher insurance premiums or that they can't travel. So the technocracy is in full bloom. And it is, I think we're in a race towards it now with COVID-19. So the answer I believe is absolutely to opt out and to start forming communities. And it kind of gets into some other ideas that we can talk about if you want what I call freedom cells. Yes, I definitely wanted to save some room for that. And I just can't believe how quickly this time is passing, but I love what you're saying. I wanted to make sure this made it in the first hour, but you cover a very important point in a recent article you wrote called Vaccine Bait and Switch, because that QAnon Trump worship stuff has captured a big part of the conspiracy culture, and I want it back. But even I second-guess myself when I hear a headline like Trump pulling back funding from the World Health Organization. I'm like, wow, that's a bold and beautiful thing to do. But as the title of that article said, it is a bait and switch. And I just think it's important that people don't get too wrapped up in who's on whose side when really the further you go up the chain, it's one big club and you ain't in it. Why was that only half the story? Why, as you say, is it a bait and switch? Yeah, I want it back too, man. I want the conspiracy <laughs> culture back too. They stole it from us. <laughs> you know, I, it is really disturbing, you know, just on that whole QAnon thing. I've given this so much thought, man, that we're really dealing it unprecedented times. Like think about 20 years from now when we're old men and we're still hopefully doing this thing and we're still alive and pushing these messages and trying to wake up people to whatever crazy things we're dealing with then. And think about how there are going to be folks who look back at this time and who still believe that Trump was a good guy and that he almost defeated the deep state, but they just fought him so hard and he couldn't do it. He'll probably be revered by some members of the conspiracy community going forward, people who fell for that. I really think that they have created a huge fracture in the conspiracy community that we're only really starting to understand and we'll see more clearly as the years go on. But as related to the vaccine thing, so people were very excited to see that Trump has been at least paying lip service to the idea that he was going to take away funding from the World Health Organization, which we all know is, you know, it's definitely a globalist organization that they use to influence global health policy. The number two funder of that organization, of course, is Bill Gates through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So some folks saw that as like a victory, like here's Trump again, proving that he's standing up against the global agenda and we're going to defund the World Health Organization. But there's a little more to the story. There's always some nuance and context that often get left out of the social media conversation. For one, let's imagine that Trump does keep that promise and he is true to his word. Well, for one, he has to get reelected and who knows what the plan is in that whole charade. But let's say he does get elected. This defunding of the World Health Organization is not supposed to happen till next April, I believe, maybe even next June, definitely in 2021. That's plenty of time for him to flip flop again like he has on many other issues. And by that point, would the Trump supporters even care? Would they even remember? You know, I mean, so let's wait and see if it actually happens in the first place. But if you trust him on his word and think that that's really what's going to happen, well, as I mentioned, Bill Gates is the number two funder of the World Health Organization. So when the United States pulls out, that puts Bill and Melinda Gates into the number one position where they already exert a number 
a really large influence. I did an article during my Bill Gates series showing that they refer to it sometimes as the bill chill, that his words have such weight at the World Health Organization that if he says something, it kind of chills the room and people like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing because he's been funding them so much. People talk about the fact that he is treated like a head of state at the World Health Organization. So that's what the technocracy is. That's what the technocrats are. They're unelected power. They don't need to be in government because they, they already wield so much influence through their money and, of course, through their technology. So this puts Gates into a position where he's even more influential with the World Health Organization. So that, to me, was kind of already like, maybe this isn't as clear as people are thinking. And then early June, we saw this video from Donald Trump coming out, putting out a video in support of Gavi. Gavi is the Global Vaccine Alliance, which was also founded by Bill and Melinda Gates in the year 2000, and it is largely still funded by their money. And Donald Trump put this out as an announcement during the Global Vaccine Summit, which was taking place in the UK, and it was funded and sponsored by Gavi. So Trump put out this kind of rambling video, as he does often, but it was a clear endorsement of Gavi and of their agenda. So that to me was like, okay, has anybody else noticed this? Because it was just one random video sitting on Gavi's YouTube channel that nobody pays attention to. So I decided I would write about that. And then the more I dug into it, I saw that actually back in February, that through USAID, which of course is tied to the CIA and has been involved in all kinds of funky things over the years, that through USAID, the Trump administration promised billions of dollars to Gavi. And so some of the Trump supporters said, well, that was before the pandemic. You know, that was before he understood the agenda. But then he also put out this endorsement video in June. And then I looked even further and saw, okay, well, maybe you can make that argument, which I don't buy. But sure, go ahead and say that was in February and somehow it's irrelevant, even though it came from the Trump administration. Well, then again, in May, Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, she also participated in this event, which was funded by Soros and funded by Bill Gates and others announcing that there was going to be even more millions of dollars going to Gavi. So I found at least three different donations, taxpayer-funded donations, let's make that clear, U.S. taxpayer dollars, going from the Trump administration towards Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, in the billions of dollars. So whereas they were giving maybe 800-something million to the World Health Organization, now they're giving billions to an organization that was founded by Bill Gates and is funded by Bill Gates, so thus, that's why, you know, we called it the bait and switch, because like I said, they claim they're going to step away from the World Health Organization. We'll see if it happens. Either way, that puts Bill Gates even more firmly in the driver's seat of the World Health Organization. And that's clearly who's guiding policy. And then at the same time, the U.S. government under the Trump administration turns around and promises billions of dollars of taxpayer money towards Gavi, which is a Gates funded outlet. So, I mean, it's just a switcheroo. It's what, you know, like it's the same thing. It doesn't really matter to me at the end of the day. It's still taxpayer dollars going to fund the same agenda. And, you know, we can also go deeper and see that the guy that Trump appointed to Operation Warp Speed, which is his whole fast track vaccines operation, his name is Monsef Slowey. He's a former executive chairman of GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, another vaccine manufacturer. That guy holds $10 million in stock in Moderna, which is one of the companies that was also funded by Bill Gates and is also one of the leading candidates for the vaccines that are coming here in the United States. So, so many people are profiting off this. So many people are benefiting off this. All the Trump administration has done is help put the big pharma people in their place. And I see a lot of Trump supporters hanging on to 
some hope because Trump keeps mentioning therapeutics, saying like he's not going to force it. He keeps saying, you know, we'll have vaccines and therapeutics, whatever that really means. I mean, I also try to caution people that Moderna also makes therapeutics and some of these therapeutics are just different types of vaccines. So I, I don't really have any false hope that the Trump administration is going to be some kind of bulwark against the incoming vaccine agenda. And it's becoming more and more clear to me, as I'm sure to you, that the mask mandates are just the precursor to the vaccine mandates. And they're saying they're going to have the first 100 million doses by October, the next 100 million doses by December, the next 100 million in January. And maybe that's just posturing. Maybe that's just trying to look good before the election. But the point is, we're looking at a situation where sometime in the next three to six months to a year, these vaccines are going to be here in the United States. And you better believe that these people want them to be mandated. Yes, yes. Well said. It seems like behind the scenes, he's playing ball with the worst of them like any president does. And I am curious to get your thoughts on coronavirus because you do seem to be resisting this persistent thread in the alternative media that there is an overlap with 5G. And you've definitely done your 5G research. So I you know, would value your opinion. You seem to be on the same page with me that it's a big power grab that was planned in advance. The ultimate goal is a mandatory vaccination, like you just said. But how are you viewing this uh, this COVID connection threat? Or what do you just think that this really is? If it isn't 5G, is it anything? There's people who think it's a, a complete media hysteria that is working up enough people to get them to the hospital for treatments that kill them. I don't know. But what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's hard to know, right? There's so many different threads. And I know that you get a lot of different opinions and views on, on your show. And just, you know, from perusing the internet, we see it all. I have spent quite a bit of work trying to, I don't want to say debunk, because I feel like when, you know, there's a negative connotation in the conspiracy community. And I understand that when somebody says debunking, because we see it as like, oh, the mainstream's trying to debunk us. But I also do think that, and I'm sure you're aware of this as well. There is a lot of garbage in the alternative media and in the conspiracy culture. And I've made it an effort of mine to really call that out. Not because I think that, you know, I've got all the answers or anything like that, but I do consider myself to be an investigative journalist. I have no fantasies of being accepted by the mainstream culture or anything like that, because the topics I touch on are just so far out of their purview. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to blindly accept every single theory that pops up on the scene. Otherwise, I would be a QAnon person. You know, I would just buy into everything. But I also have noticed that there are a lot of people in our audiences and in this community that do believe anything and everything and that don't have the greatest critical thinking skills, even though they can see through some of the mainstream garbage. They're just as easily to believe something if it comes from the alternative media. And they think, oh, everything from MSM is lies. So therefore, everything I get from these alternative guys must be real. And that's just not factual. The mainstream media gives you truth mixed with lies and sometimes outright fabrications. And many of us in the alternative media are just searching for answers. But there are also people who make proclamations and speak authoritatively as if they have the answers. And in my experience, I've kind of gone through looking into those things and they don't always seem to pan out. And the 5G coronavirus connection thing, when it first started popping up, I thought it was really, okay, well, what is this? You know, here's another thing coming on the movement. Let me just wait. I'm more patient. I tend to wait and see what's happening. And when I realized like, okay, this thing isn't going away, there's a lot of people talking about this. I want to see what it's about, especially because I had just put out my 5G documentary back in February, which seems like forever ago. Um, and I wanted to really see what was going on there. 
And I have found a number of holes. And I, and I don't want to spend too much time reiterating what I've already done in videos. If people want to see that, they can see on my website. I've done a pretty good extensive interview with James Corbett as well, talking about that. But, you know, just briefly, one of the things, like I mentioned that Houston started rolling out 5G back in October 2018. Yet, despite what the news says about us now being a hotspot, you know, people aren't falling down and dying in the streets. I just think that there's been so much information that is and misinformation that has come out. In the beginning, people were looking at videos from China and watching people falling on the ground and collapsing. And, you know, I don't know what those were. Clearly, those weren't coronavirus symptoms because none of us have seen that since then. Maybe it was fake news. Maybe it was a video that was taken out of context. I don't know what it was, but those videos were circulating like, look, this is people responding to 5G and the coronavirus, and this is what's going to happen to you. Oh, coincidentally, Wuhan had 5G and all these antennas. And, and those things are true. But then I started looking at it and like, well, Houston, like I said, has had 5G for going on two years. We have five different companies operating 5G. And you could argue maybe we don't have the same density of towers and this and that. But my point was, why are people getting sick, whatever's happening in places where there is no 5G? Why are people that have 5G in their cities not being overrun with cases? You know, I just don't think it adds up. Of course, that doesn't mean that 5G doesn't cause any harm. I clearly understand that. I made a whole documentary about that. But the thing is, much like that study that, or that it's not even a study, the commentary, the editorial that was circulating a couple of weeks ago, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which many people thought was like the bombshell evidence proving that 5G is connected to coronavirus, you know, that paper was quickly retracted. And in this case, I think it was rightly so retracted because it was shit. It seemed like it was written by somebody in high school doing a report on what they think a scientific paper should look like. And a lot of the information just didn't add up. You know, of course, the mainstream tore it apart, like 5G conspiracy theorists, you know, think this is connecting COVID. And I think that's part of this operation. I don't know if somebody is purposely spreading this information. I've had some sources tell me that they think that the 5G COVID thing is actually being spread by the telecoms in order to discredit the 5G movement. Because if you go back to January, we had the second international day of action against 5G. We had 200 plus countries around the world participating in actions against 5G right before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hit, and then everybody was talking about 5G and coronavirus. And what I've noticed since then is anytime that somebody comes across my 5G work now, they automatically make the assumption that I'm trying to make a COVID connection, right? So they don't even want to hear the legitimate information that I have that's proving that there are dangers associated with EMFs and 2G, 3G, 4G, and 5G, and all of that. And I went over another study back in May in one of my videos, which is still up and still standing and hasn't been retracted because it's actually credible. Of course, the mainstream ignores it, where these researchers were showing that, you know, there's so much danger is coming specifically because none of the other studies on 5G have actually considered the effects of 5G on top of 4G, 3G, 2G, Wi-Fi, etc., so my point is that there's credible information that we have already that proves the dangers in 5G, including that it does affect your cellular body, including that it can weaken your immune system. So if there's any connection, the connection I would say is that we're being overexposed to EMFs from our computers, our laptops, our phones, to all the towers, and that over time could weaken people's immune system and make them more susceptible. But what people don't understand, I've noticed, is that 5G and EMFs, while the technology does exist to sort of make a beam forming like a laser or something, for lack of a better term, aiming at you that you would feel instant pain, for the most part, the effects of EMFs are cumulative. They build up over time, just like people were concerned. And, you know, I still am concerned about the body scanners at the airports and 
I opt out every time I used to fly. I don't fly anymore now. But when I used to fly, I would opt out every time because I don't want to be radiated by that microwave. Because the point is that if you're flying often, like some people for work, they fly every day or every week, and you're going through that scanner, it's going to build up over time. And that cumulative radiation starts to affect your skin and your other organs. It's not that you just go through it one single time and then, oh my God, you're sick, you're going to die now. And I feel like that's what some of these people are thinking with 5G, that they turn on the 5G and everybody just drops dead. That's not how it happens. It's just a misunderstanding of the science. And you kind of look like a fool when you say that because, not you, but the people making these arguments, because if somebody, say a normie comes along and they actually have an understanding of the science, well, then they're just going to laugh you off because they're going to say, you don't understand how this works. You know, Even if they don't accept that it's bad, they know that the effects of things like EMFs, they're cumulative. They build up over time. So I think there's a number of fundamental misunderstandings. And I have been attacked by this. I mean, even just this morning, I woke up to some YouTube comments, people saying that I must be a paid shill and I'm trying to misdirect people to not see the 5G connection that's there and with COVID. And, and I just, if somebody can bring me the hard evidence, and I do plan to interview Arthur Furstenberg, who is an amazing yeah. researcher and author of The Invisible Rainbow. And he's one of the biggest proponents of saying that EMFs have caused the Spanish flu and other things in the past. If I can find that evidence or if I feel convinced, then you better believe I will do reports. I will try to get the information out there. But thus far, I haven't seen anything justifying that. Right on. Yeah. Furstenberg is high on my list. I can't seem to get him here. So uh, that would be really awesome if you were able to talk to him, especially being kind of um, skeptical of the overall position. Although his book is really excellent, full of so much data that it's almost nauseating as you go through it. And he just lists point after point of the history of electrical technologies and how they've affected health. And a lot of hidden history that we just don't even know about anymore. It's very fascinating, but you're right. It is important to be accurate. Otherwise, we're no better than the elite if we are just actively lying to people because it's like juicy and provocative. That's a part of what I do. I call what I do conspiratainment because it's a little of both because a lot of times the real smoking gun to what we might want is out of our reach. It's too high up there. So we do have to speculate a little bit sometimes, but it's also really great to build the most accurate case we can for the things that we do have the data on. And the perception of conspiracy culture is that we always lump everything together into one big grand single agenda. And I can see how the 5G coronavirus connection thing going so viral so fast was almost an operation to take all the air out of the alternative media and define our position for us to everyone else and to play into that whole it's all connected perception that the larger population has of the conspiracy culture. So yeah, it muddies the waters for sure. Maybe there's truth to it. I still don't know. I obviously am very skeptical of both things and as are you. So yeah, are there health effects of 5G? Of course. Is it specifically coronavirus? Maybe not. It doesn't have to be all connected and it's important to be accurate. So, man, one thing I also wanted to try to slide in here is I wanted to make people aware of what you call the freedom formula, which breaks down to the level of freedom a person desires plus their willingness to change equals their actual experience of freedom. And just to elaborate with a quote of yours. Not only are we all motivated differently, but our habits and lifestyles will also shape our ability to be free from the technocratic state. 
The level of privacy and liberty you maintain in the coming years will be decided by your willingness to change, adapt, and abandon habits which weaken your ability to be free of systems of oppression. This struggle between what you want and your actions decides whether your desires become reality or remain a fantasy. And I think that's really well said, something everyone should be reflecting on. And maybe you got something to add on that note as we're starting to wind this thing down. Yeah, I'm glad you actually mentioned that. I kind of forgot about writing that whole thing there. So you're reminding me I need to share that more out there with people because it's just something that's come to me with recognizing that, like you said, we all have different interests. We all have different ideas of freedom and how we're going to value that. I do think, though, that if we each try to understand where we're actually headed, like what does freedom mean to you? What does that really look like? You know, I talked about intentional communities before, and I know there's lots of people who have ideas of intentional communities, but maybe have never stopped to like, well, what does being off grid mean? Or what does that piece of land I dream about actually look like? And how would I interact with other people and all these kinds of ideas? And I just think the more tangible we think about this, the more practical we think about everything that we are facing in the world and where we want to go then the better we're going to be off in the end, right? So, I mean, if you're after privacy, but you're like, yeah, I'm not really ready to give up my cell phone, well, then you're just going to have to accept that there's going to be certain levels of privacy you won't be able to afford yet. But if you're like, privacy is what's of utmost importance to me, then you might be willing to make certain decisions that other people won't make, right? And so I just think that that whole freedom formula, the idea is about helping people establish what it is that they're really after and what they're really willing to do to get that. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. People do need a little guidance to stop and think about these things and sort through them. It's why anyone who goes to therapy is like, hey, that's really helpful because just talking about your ideas and really drilling down is important. And I think we take for granted how important it is, and we don't do it enough, how many hours are spent in front of the TV versus how many hours are spent thinking about specifically the future that you want. You know, it is a big deal. But Derek, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and for letting me reschedule this with you after I had to cancel last minute. Totally bad form on my part. So thanks for sticking with me and for all you do. You're not afraid of bad people or bad words, and I salute you for it. Definitely remind the people of your website, the work, all these little things you got. You got a lot of irons in the fire, as they say, but what would you want to leave people with in terms of following up? Well, thank you again, man, for all your work. I've followed your channel for a while and, and have some friends who you've talked with over the years, so that's always nice to connect. And my work, the main spot is just theconsciousresistance.com. I do want to mention again for people who are looking for others and trying to actively connect, check out freedomcells.org and just create a profile, add yourself to the map, you know, search the map for people in your area and please, you know, do whatever you can. Take in the information that you hear on this show, but also don't forget that that these things are actually affecting your life. They are out there in the real world and we have to I believe take some precautions for how we're going to face them as we move forward. So thank you, brother. Definitely, man. Cheers to all that. It has gotten very real. I still like to throw in a Bigfoot episode or a Demon Masters of the Elite show here and there just to cover the spread, but it is all very heavy and quite serious now, and we need to fold in a bit more planning and a bit more action to the way we think about these things because 
that's becoming a lot more important than some of the old provocative what ifs. But regardless, man, I do appreciate everything you do. Your dedication is an inspiration. Take care and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you, brother. Malakaliki Maka people or something like that. There it is. Show number five for the month of August going out with a bang. I really like what Derek is doing. The dude has one hell of a work ethic and a real wild story on a mission to make America friends again. And I agree with that. Being civil is more important than being right in these kind of volatile times. Cheers to all you who've been getting through 2020 without going to war with your friends and family. Because when the shit hits the fan for real, you need a network of people who love and respect you. First and foremost, hopefully they agree with your positions too, but that's secondary really. So do you have that? Because I really hope that we all do. This is another episode where I had so much more to talk to Derek about because his work is so vast. I actually planned for the Finders conversation to be how we ended the first hour, but it became the whole second hour. And we didn't even get to talk about things like his exposed Bill Gates Global Day of Action, the few videos he's done on UFOs and the recent quote-unquote disclosures there, his holistic self-assessment book and its importance, Kratom, or the interview he did with another bright mind who researched and then cracked Tesla's work. All that would have been so interesting. Sometimes even two hours can just fly by. So we had more than enough material, but I do like thorough answers too. I like those details, right? And yes, a lot of us in this conspiracy space think that voting is a waste of time, it's an energy siphon, it's a false sense of choice, it's the karma chameleon from hell, and all that. But I like the famous phrase, play politics or get played by politics, because the capstone cabal is always trying to erode our already eroded freedoms, economic standing, our nutrition, and our mental faculties. That's the battleground, and you can push back and make it difficult for them, or you can acquiesce and pretend to be above it all and look at where that's gotten us. It's a common argument, but most European countries get more vacation days, maternity leave, and a shorter work week because they get out in the streets and they demand it. And the elites say, okay, fine, keep your Fridays. What do we care? We got everything else. I think we know that they will give us as little as we're willing to accept. And I still find those numbers pretty shocking about Houston, a city of nearly 4 million people and less than 250,000 show up to vote, and the winner probably only got half of that. So when people say, well, if everyone just stayed home on voting day, the system would collapse. Well, not really. They would just pick a winner with the... 5% of people voting, or 2%, whatever it is. Besides, no good argument ever starts with, well, if everyone just. Because that's a fantasy. Which is also why, when I see so many people out there trying to police the mask thing, I have to laugh. If you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to police mask wearing in a Target, 
if you're going to go making snarky comments to anyone who doesn't have a mask at the beach, it's going to consume you and you will never be in a good mood because you can't get everyone to do anything. But as we were going along with this interview, we did spend more time on our guest's personal experience and background than usual. Derek seems like an example or a template that a lot of people could probably use right now. How many people out there feel stuck, like they don't have any hope or opportunity, they're at the whims of the big machine? Well, an ex-felon who's been on some of the most addicting substances figured out how to turn it around, and it's hard to argue that he had some sort of advantage that you don't have. So by starting it that way, I had hoped that it might shake some people from their rut. Never let a good crisis go to waste is advice that you can take too, you know? We always hope to be somewhat positive and make these conversations useful. I don't know what you're going to do with alien moon bases and shape-shifting cryptids, but when we've had our fun with stuff like that, THC at least tries to circle back to the biggest conspiracy of all, the co-option of your time and your energy and your life to an economic game that never lets us climb as high as we're promised, never gives us true fulfillment, and does have us just generating wealth for the upper class and picking up the crumbs. That is, unless we do things our own way, like Derek has. I have to go off my own experience, too. I had zero options but to build something of my own. But now I've got the best life I could imagine, and I shudder to think what a year like this would have been like for the sad, lowly GameStop manager I once was. I would have been crushed. I doubt I'd even be in California anymore because I was barely treading water as it was. You can only bring so many couches you find in the alley into your bedroom to sleep on. <laughs> but let Derek's story be an inspiration. Not that you have to be an activist or a podcaster, but maybe hook up with a local freedom cell and see what needs they have if you really want to get involved with something. Or maybe it's time to open up that online store for whatever skill or passion or product you have up your sleeve. Maybe you just learn how to wean off your system dependence and then become an expert in homesteading and doing that and now you and your family are better off and you could start a business advising and consulting other families to be able to do the same. You would probably have a better income, make your own schedule, have no boss, be learning practical skills, and you would be proud of the work you're doing. Look at that. <laughs> it's that easy, right? And yes, it would be nice if you had started last year, but I'm sure you'll be able to say the same thing in 2021 or 2022, so why not dive in? I think we all could be better. In fact, I was just listening to a show that critiques conspiracy culture, and critiques is way too kind of a word. They really roast it like a pig on a spigot. And somebody made the comment of how it's never the good-looking or popular people who buy into conspiracies. You ever notice that? It's always these fat losers who have no life trying to educate the rest of us on the flat earth. And I hate to hear stuff like that. I would much rather try and elevate our culture and show that it improves your life to have a better grasp on the true reality behind the curtain. 
I guess it goes back to some offhanded comment I made on an episode probably two years ago at this point about this very thing. Something something about us striving for more than being neckbeard keyboard warriors in our parents' basement. Cliche thing to say, I know, but I still get comments and messages from people who are offended by that. And I would say, number one, get a thicker skin. And number two, if you aren't that, then it's hard to be offended by that characterization if it doesn't apply to you. So think long and hard about that. I just go through these cycles where I feel like it's time to grow up because a lot of mud has been thrown into the conspiracy waters in the last few years, way more than usual. And when you look at someone who's an enthusiastic Trump supporter or someone that makes the flat earth their primary issue, do they seem like a model example of the person you want to strive to be? Because that's what we're associated with. And I know some great people who are into both, just like veganism, but generally, it doesn't seem to serve them well. It doesn't seem to put them in the best position for success in life. So, you know, if these sorts of statements are deeply offensive to you to the point that you'll hold on to them all year long and hit me with one-star iTunes reviews that comment about it, does even that serve you well? Every culture has a stereotypical archetype of their least common denominator, hipsters, jocks, stoners, punk rockers, and conspiracy enthusiasts. What is so wrong with being a part of a culture and also being aware of that least common denominator stereotype and trying to make sure that you're not drifting towards that yourself? If 2020 has taught me anything, it's that we should have taken the kid gloves off a long time ago. We should have turned our knowledge into action because the stakes are just too high right now to not be at our best. And I'm really just talking to myself here, you know, trying to light a fire under my own ass as much as anyone else's. I'm proud of what I do, but I talked to a guy like Derek and I know I could do a lot more. He's gotten me all fired up. (laughs) I don't know if I would run for mayor of San Diego but I could probably push myself in some regard. I mean, who cares if there's a new character in Apex Legends, you know? So yes, loved having Derek here. Great guy. We're aligned on so much. He definitely elevates the discourse, and his documentaries are great educational tools that lay out the facts rather than the speculation. And look, I love speculation, but... That's for the advanced class, or the THC equivalent of a casual Friday. It's not the best way to convert someone over to the alternative space. I think we all can admit that. Let's get them on board with aliens before we tell them that all the aliens are demons looking for human hosts. But in terms of the things we talked about today, I definitely liked being able to fit in that detail about the executive branch's support for and $1.16 billion donation to the Gates-backed Gavi Vaccine Alliance. As Derek pointed out, everybody talks about that first part, that he withdrew some funds from the World Health Organization, but they forget to add where those funds now go. People say I have a bias, but I have a bias against authority and presidents, and these things are so important. I want conspiracy culture back, and there's going to be a lot of people that are 
blacked out drunk on state-sponsored QAnon Kool-Aid, and we're going to have to sober you up eventually. I am so sick of conspiracy enthusiasts equating to a Trump nuthugger. It comes up constantly when people see my car and ask me about it. Within two sentences, we're talking about Trump, but <laughs> my own personal struggles aside, let's read it again, as Derek wrote. In early June, the Trump administration declared support for Gavi to the tune of a $1.16 billion donation. Trump's support for Gavi came via the first-ever virtual global vaccine summit. At this summit, Gavi surpassed the goal of $7.4 billion, instead raising $8.8 billion and securing commitments from most major nations around the world. Gavi even received a $5 million donation from the Rockefeller Foundation. Gavi stated that the funding would go to, quote, routine immunization programs and will also help the public-private partnership play a major role in the rollout of a future COVID-19 vaccine. Can you wear your MAGA hat proudly now? It's getting scary out there, and I don't know how you can twist that one, but I'm sure some people will try. <laughs> but moving on, like I said, the Plus Show is where we got deep into the Finder's Cult, deeper than I've ever really gotten, learning about the game caller and the structure of the whole thing. It's quite a trip. We also talked about why we need to get off the grid, the exit and build strategy versus the hold down the fort strategy and COVID-19 and alternatives to the 5G thread. I personally do put a little stock in the 5G coronavirus connection, but I definitely understand when people like Derek say that they just don't think the burden of proof has been met yet. I leave the door open on that one, although I think that both me and Derek would say, yeah, we think there are health risks to 5G and we don't want it in our cities, and we also don't want the mandatory vaccine, and if we can agree on those things, I'm happy. <laughs> As always, if you're a THC fan, you are only hearing half of the entire catalog of shows without a Plus membership, so come on in. It's eight bucks, and even if you just come in for a month or two and cancel, that's okay with me. There's a ton of stuff in that archive that I think could be useful to everyone out there, and throwing a couple bucks my way helps me do what I do. If you're cash-strapped but you appreciate THC, maybe just toss a good review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever for me. I never pay much attention to reviews. I don't really comment on them very much but I did just read more about how they can increase or decrease a podcast's discoverability on the big platforms, and even a small burst of good reviews can put a show in front of a lot of new eyes. And if I didn't think our days could potentially be numbered on the big platforms, I wouldn't care as much. But I should care a little bit, even though ultimately I'm not that worried about it. Reviews help, is what I'm saying. Maybe you could hook me up while it's still possible. But I'm going to get to Mosian. Keep your eyes open for Derek's next documentary, The Pyramid of Power. I'm always interested to see how various researchers map out that nebulous power structure. 
Also, freedomcells.org to find like-minded others in our area, theconsciousresistance.com for more media from Derek, and I'll see you next time. Your move, brain drainers, people pacifiers, and manipulators of the masses. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart. We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline. That he carries all. Doing